You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> I'm Bia Pippa. When we think of Germany, we think of a country that makes amazing cars, a nation of football world champions, a country of succulent bratwurst sausages, and great beer. We think of a nation of law abiding citizens with unrivaled industrial productivity, which is the economic powerhouse of Europe. But a country with a real estate market that defies all international norms? A real estate market that breaks every rule in the book? Come with us as we take you on a journey into the twilight zone of German real estate and explore the baffling economic forces powering it. A place where the impossible is possible. Featuring Stephen Diggle, founder of Volpus Investment Management. You've got a general or of prosperity, but you've got interest rates that look like the place is in depression. And Bern Ondruch, founder and CIO of Astalon Capital Partners. And you can see this in some of the sort of more mid-cap indices. They have even outperformed Nasdaq, yeah, some of the best-performing indices out there. Join us as we explore the drivers that create the upside-down world of severely undervalued German real estate. What's missing is a mass participation in this market. What moves Anglo-Saxon property markets is mass participation. And we've got seen no signs of this whatsoever. This week on Adventures in Finance, we take you on an open house tour of Germany to uncover a potential investing opportunity without precedent. Also coming up on this week's podcast... We have our long short segment where Grant and I go through the good and not so good stories of the week. Yeah, my long for the week is uh, another story featuring Stanley Druckenmiller. He said, get out of the stock market now. And he got into gold in a big way, put $330 million of his own money in gold. And one of my favorite segments, things I got wrong, we speak with leading investors and market thinkers about mistakes they've made and try and help people explore the lessons they've learned along the way. This week, we had a real pleasure in speaking with Mark Yusko, the founder and CIO of Morgan Creek Capital Management. The great thing about this business is, is you know, the average investor is wrong more often than they're right. The legends are right about 58% of the time. So you know, I aspire to get somewhere in the 50s. I'm Grant Williams. And I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is February 9th, 2017, and welcome to Episode 3 of Adventures in Finance. Now, if you're just joining us, listen to Episodes 1 and 2 to check out some of the cool stuff we did on demonetization in India and geopolitics. Now, if you tune into Episode 2 last week, you may remember that Grant Williams, the founder of Real Vision, and my co-host on the podcast was in London at the time, but... Grant, I saw you briefly on Monday, and then you were off to somewhere else. So where in the world are you? Uh, I am coming to you live from uh, sunny, or not so sunny, Costa Mesa, California, where I'm going to do some uh, a couple more Real Vision interviews, and then I'm off to Texas and South Africa. 
So I have no idea where I'll be next time we speak, but we, we are here together now, Aaron. So let's do this. All right. So Grant, I'm sensing a trend here. It was rainy in London. Now it's rainy in California. Are you, uh, are you, <laughs> well, you bring well, it no, with you, you? You expect it to be rainy in London. You expect it to be rainy in London. Uh, here in California, not so much. So uh, I don't want people to blame me for it. But uh, the good news is I'll be out of the state tomorrow. So things should be looking up. Yeah. And they can also use the rain out there. So I was talking to a couple of the guys in the office about the China devaluation story, and I want to get your opinion on something. The China devaluation story is nothing new for Real Vision TV subscribers. You know, we've had numerous contributors come on and talk about the yuan devaluation uh, way before it was a major headline grabber in the mainstream media. But I guess I'm interested in getting your take on how to approach a thesis that the the consensus has sort of co-opted. And, you know, how do you figure out your own positioning if you followed this thesis for a while? Well, it's a great question. I mean, this is something that uh, that so many smart people have been talking about. And interestingly enough, there, there are some really high profile, super smart guys on both sides of this. So I think it's important that people listen to what both sides have to say, um, because they both make a compelling case. You know, Carl Bass, Mark Hart, uh, great friends of ours here at Real Vision, talk very eloquently about about why the devaluation is coming and why it's going to be a, a sudden sharp devaluation. And you have someone like Hugh Hendry, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for on the other side of the trade, saying, look, there's no way it happens. So I think what people really have to do is is, is listen to uh, as many of these opinions as they can, but then you have to sit down and do your own thinking, do your own reading, and try and work out which one of the probabilities, because that's all they really are, um, which one of the probabilities is highest in terms of the outcome, uh, and then, and then uh, place your bets accordingly. But it's a very it's a very tricky uh, a tricky one to get a handle on, and and don't forget, this may be a time to not have a trade on in this. We may not be quite at the tipping point yet. So, yeah, you know, as always, I, many people like to just do their own thinking. I like to seek out the opinions of super smart guys like Mark, Kyle, and Hugh, uh, and then and then weigh up the probabilities for myself. Yeah, and I guess part of the benefit of being a K-Man is you're we can be very isolated from everybody else and and the noise uh, of uh, you know of the market. So looking forward to doing some of that uh, thinking myself, but all right, let's move on to our long short segment, uh, where Grant and I look at the, the good and not so good, uh, headlines for the week. Um, Grant, do you want to start with your long for the week? Yeah. My long for the week is, uh, another story featuring Stanley Druckenmiller, who is, uh, right up at the very top of both Real and I's wish list for real vision. You know, uh, back in May of last year, uh, Stan made a very high-profile call when he said, get out of the stock market now. Uh, and he got into gold in a big way, put $330-odd million of his own money in gold. And uh, right after the election, um, he announced that he'd sold it all. He sold all his gold on election night, and that was used by a lot of people to say, well, you know, the gold trade's over, um, Stan's out of gold. Lo and behold, this morning, the big headline on Bloomberg is that he's re-established his gold position. And I, and I think the long from this, the thing that people should take away from it, is guys like Stan, who are incredibly successful investors, they maintain the ability and the discipline to change their mind, to be in and out of the same trade uh, for different reasons at different times. You know, all the headlines were, buy gold in May, the gold trade's over in November, um, and now I'm sure the trades are going to, the, the, the headlines, sorry, are all going to be about how Stan's longer gold again. And I think the thing to take away from this is really never, ever be so convinced of a trade 
that you stick with it through thick and thin. Have the, have the courage, your convictions to, uh, to to be out of it if you think the time is right, and don't be afraid to get back into it if you think your reasoning's wrong. Yeah, that's that's sage advice. And but Grant, I, I guess <laughs> thinking about that and and the timing of coming out, I wonder if Stan's already been in gold for about a month, and now he's finally coming out and and announcing it to the market. Um, with uh, with a view of maybe selling off some of the positions as retail enters a trade, what are your thoughts on that? Ah, oh, look, I, is it possible? Yeah, I, I don't think guys like Stan necessarily need to worry too much about that. I mean, these are big positions; he's not looking to make a few percent on it. Um, so I, I I don't think he's doing. I, you know, it's it's not it's not inconceivable, but I, I I think he's got bigger fish to fry personally. All right. Well, my long for the week is. Um, Alternative rock, actually. <laughs> um, I read an article uh, from the Foundation of e- for Economic Education, and the title was, Is Trump Making Rock Rebellious Again? And it was, I thought it was an interesting article because you know, one of the thoughts that I've had is that pop culture, at least music, used to have this sort of subversive quality to it. Uh, but you know, in the last couple of years, it, it hasn't had that up until recently. Um, for the band Franz Ferdinand came up with a song called Demagogue, where you know, they're as, as the name implies, they're talking about Trump. And there's a line in, you know, some of the lyrics, if you listen to it, it's, uh, you know, from, it goes like this, from the wall straight to La Cuenta, those, and I'm not going to say this word, but it rhymes with the 19th century French composer, Claude Debussy, those grabbing fingers won't let go of me now. Uh, so I just, I just thought it was, I'm long subversive music. And I'm, and, and I think it's, it's so important now, especially uh, with everything that's happening in politics where, you know, music sort of takes back its role, take, you know, regains its role as, as a, as a counterculture, a force. So I am long alternative rock, Grant. Well, it's funny, you know, you, you, you talk about that. The last time we saw this kind of music really taking hold was, of course, punk in the 70s, which was you know, a period of economic disruption and inflation and all kinds of bad stuff. So um, it is interesting how, uh, how this kind of stuff goes in, in cycles. If nothing else, maybe it signals the end of Michael Bublé. <laughs> Until he's, but he, Michael Bublé is, is like the groundhog. He comes out, he appears every every November, December to sing his songs, and then disappears for the rest of the year. Well, actually, that's a little harsh on Michael Bublé. Let, let's 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 throw Kenny G in instead of Michael Bublé. I don't mind a bit of Bublé now and again. <laughs> All right, so uh, Grant, what's your short for the week? Yeah, my short for the week, uh, which is a regular a regular feature uh, in my own life, is Greece. Greece is back, uh, and you know, look, it never really went away. But uh, the IMF are now, I mean, amazingly, the IMF are coming out and saying what we all knew, what we all had no doubts about whatsoever. Uh, that you know, unless the Greek debts are put on a more <laughs> manageable trajectory, uh, it, they're not going to be able to bail them out anymore. I mean, it, it, it's amazing to me how this stuff keeps going around uh, we knew at the time that they that they kind of the problem was solved for x and x was keep the eurozone together so they threw more money at greece but it, you know I, I, what i take from this the fact that greece has come back again and suddenly is back to dominating the news cycle because we're coming up to another one of these junctures where the imf have to put their hands in their pockets is the the ability and in fact the willingness of investors to totally ignore something they know is a problem once they've been told by central banks that it's all going to be okay uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to throw the IMF in with the central banks here. Nobody I think was ever convinced that Greece was fixed back uh, back at the last back in the last time that this, this was uh, front page news and here we are again and so I think investors are, are waiting for the central banks to say 
don't worry, we're going to stump up again. They're assuming it's going to happen. And I just have a feeling that this might be uh, a step too far. And this time might be the time when the IMF uh, in particular balks. So uh, my short is Greece, um, beautiful country, disaster economically. Uh, It's back on the radar screens. And I suspect that uh, this time the solution will not be as palatable to markets as everyone's expecting. I mean, on that, Grant, what astonishes me is is how, or at least the, the role the media plays in this, because it just seems like these these things are recycled. And, and they're, you know, we heard about Greece a while back, and then it, it disappears, and now it comes back. And then, meanwhile, central banks have almost conditioned investors to be extremely myopic and, and to be highly reactionary to any, uh, any whatever they, they put in front of us next. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like a horrendous... Well, I don't, I don't, you know, Aaron, I, don't, I, I, I think it's worse than that. I don't think it's about being myopic. I think it's about, you know, cognitive dissonance. This is, we know Greece is a problem. We know that the last Band-Aid that we put over it did not fix it. And yet we're expecting them to find another solution to the problem. It, you know, it comes up every now and again. They throw more money at it, it goes away. We don't have to worry about it. And, and if you look at the, the, the ever-shortening timeline of market reaction to bad events, look at Brexit, uh, Trump, Italy, the timeline when markets turned around after initially falling has got shorter and shorter. It's just this, this conditioning to, to know that everything's going to be made okay, everything's going to be kissed better. And uh, I just have a feeling that this time, they're not going to be able to find the money for Greece, and and the problem is going to is going to send shockwaves through the market. Yeah, that's uh, definitely going to be something to look out for. Uh, so, Grant, my short for the week is um, Bank of America opening up uh, employee list branches. So these are they open up. Yeah, three, I, saw, I saw this. Yeah. yeah, they they open up three completely automated branches uh, over the past month. Uh, with plans for 50 to 60 additional new branches uh, in this in this coming year. Now, I don't know if all 50 or 60 of those branches are going to be automated as the other three that they opened. But when you think about it, I was just on the BLS, uh, Bank uh, Bureau of Labor S- uh, Statistics website, looking at the data. And back in 2014, there were about 500,000 bank tellers. And over the next 10 years, they were projected to go to decrease, to diminish by 8%. Now, I think that is grossly optimistic when you consider the rate at which, you know, if, if, if minimum wage laws are passed and, and um, say there is protectionism, it's going to make U.S. labor more expensive and just inch us ever closer, actually not even inch, like <laughs> we're going to be jumping there uh, towards automation. So I, I, I saw this headline and I am short uh, in some ways bank tellers because this is, this is definitely not a good sign. You know, it's funny, uh, I, just traveling here yesterday, I, I flew from the Cayman Islands through Miami and on to Los Angeles. And when I, when I landed in Miami, I have this global entry thing, which is a life-changing uh, thing to do. Anyone that travels regularly to the States, get global entry. I'm telling you, it will change your life. But I, I, I kind of got off the plane in Cayman, walked through, interacted with a kiosk, walked through, handed my, uh, the receipt from the kiosk to a guy. We said two words to each other was through, got on my next plane to Los Angeles, got to the rental car place, uh, you know, went to a kiosk to get my car, got the car, and off I went. And it's funny, when you travel around, you notice how you have fewer and fewer human interactions. And you know, this is a trend that is not going to change. I mean, I think it's a trend that's going to accelerate. So I think it's a, it's a great point you bring up. Well, soon the guy at um, the immigration officer you, you spoke with, <laughs> soon it might be a chatbot even, designed by Facebook. 
or Google. Um, but uh, you know, I ha- well, uh, somehow they they will have to code the requisite amount of uh, grumpiness into any uh, <laughs> border control agent in a, in a chatbot in the United States. Yeah, that might be difficult. I don't know if the AI is uh, advanced enough for that. So that's a long short for the week, and this week we return with our documentary feature where we seek to deep dive on something that's happening in global financial markets. So this week we're going to focus uh, on the German real estate market, which is something I've had a bit of experience uh, with when I was working with one of our guests today, Steve Diggle. Uh, German real estate has quietly become an interesting market for foreign investors. When we started looking at this at Volpez um, four or five years ago now, there was nobody looking at it. And German, the, the, the culture in Germany is very different to that which we expect to find elsewhere. In this documentary, we're going to look into the fundamental, the cultural, and the monetary drivers of this market, um, which, as I said, is different to a lot of markets that, uh, that our listeners will be familiar with. All right, before we do so, Grant, what do you, what do you think of when, when, you, when you think of Germany? Uh, well, uh, as an Englishman, uh, the first thing I think of is football. But uh, outside that, I think if you asked uh, people outside the UK, it would be fast cars, beer, and, uh, and, and probably industrial productivity for the nerds amongst us. <laughs> yeah, I, I, sorry, I don't have the, their productivity stat next to me. But, you know, you don't normally associate Germany with a booming real estate market. Um, other countries, other cities have really dominated the headlines. I think last week we talked about London, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Singapore, I mean, also Sydney, San Francisco. I mean, the list goes on. But as you said from the outset, Germany has kind of become, quietly become a hotbed for foreign real estate investments. Uh, but it might be helpful to add some historical context to what's happening in Germany right now. Okay, so, I mean, look, if, you, if you think back to, to pre the global financial crisis and the US housing boom, you know, the Fed start lowering rates when the dot-com bubble burst back in you know, 2000, 2001. You see George W. Bush signed the American Dream Down Payment Initiative, whatever the hell that was, um, which is basically, uh, you know, qualified Americans got $10,000 towards their down payment um, for, for a new home. And obviously, what do we see? We see a proliferation of subprime mortgage lending. We see ninja loans. We see all these liar loans spring up around the world. And we get to the point where in 2006, 90% of subprime mortgages uh, were adjustable rate. And that was at the, at the encouragement of Alan Greenspan. 2007, we've got $1.3 trillion of subprime mortgages outstanding. And, and of course, that on the back of that, the debt to disposable income in the US rose to about 127%, which is, you know, which is crazy. At the time, nobody seemed to think it was a problem. Um, the banks bought the mortgages and repackaged them, as we all know, into CDOs. Um, there was all kinds of terrible financial engineering going on. And then just to add insult to injury, the rating agencies would come along, tie a triple A uh, rated bow around the whole thing, and, and, and parcel this out to pension funds. I mean, it, it was a disaster waiting to happen. And sure enough, we get to 2004, when the Fed starts to raise rates again, and instantly the whole thing starts to, to buckle. Americans couldn't refinance their mortgages. Uh, a bunch of uh, adjustable rates uh, adjusted higher, which people hadn't been used to. And we start to see uh, defaults happen. By the time we get to 2007... Um, it's clear to those people trading these markets on the inside that, that the problems were very real and getting bigger. But it wasn't really until Bear Stearns in March of 2008 and then Lehman in September that year went under that people really started to panic. We had Bernanke telling us that there had never been a nationwide uh, fall in house prices. Well, you know, he sure got one after that when they fell 30% on average. And, and we get to that point where the whole financial system's on the brink of collapse. But all the way through that, all the way through the boom, and the bust, 
Germany's real estate market did absolutely nothing. You look at the charts and it basically flatlined. It was creeping up maybe a percent a year, maybe in line with inflation. Um, but that was really it. It, it. And that German real estate has that habit of being out of sync with the rest of the world. Um, you know, I remember when back in 2002, when one of the largest lenders in, in Berlin collapsed, um, the real estate market was on its, on its knees. And it never really recovered until 2009 or 10. So it never really participated in what, what was going on in the rest of Europe, in Ireland and Spain, etc. So that's Bern Ondruk, founding partner and CIO of Aslan Capital Partners, speaking with Raoul Powell, co-founder of Real Vision. So Germany seems sort of out of out of sync with the rest of the world. Um, but meanwhile, this whole time, the economy grew stronger than ever. Well, it's funny, it's funny, it's funny to listen to that and you realize it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the, the first time that there's, there seemed to be some life in the German real estate market was 2009, 2010, when we had this massive injection of liquidity into the markets. Um, you know, it's obvious what's going on here. The Germans were kind of slow uh, to pick up on this because that, that's, a, that's a cultural thing which we'll get into in a little while. But it doesn't take a genius to figure out what's happened here. I mean, it's the anchor of Europe. Um, it's roughly one third of you know, total assets, balance sheets, market cap, 25% of, of deal flow. Um, Germany has done exceptionally well post-GFC, um, I believe primarily because it benefited from what was going on in China. Um, I think, you know, based on our numbers, um, if you look at the profitability of some of the German corporates, we believe that at least one third of the marginal profit increase since GFC is actually explained by what is going on in China. And you can see this in some of the sort of more mid-cap indices. They have even outperformed Nasdaq, you know, some of the best performing indices out there. Wow. German mid-caps doing better than Nasdaq. Yeah, look, the, the, the German middle strand is, is the backbone of the country. I mean, this, this, this idea that real businesses making real things and selling them should be outperforming all these high-flying tech companies is, seems a strange one to people these days. But, but we, I, you know, in my mind, we are heading back to that time where people are going to want to own real businesses that sell real tangible things to real tangible people. And, and there's nowhere that does that better than Germany. And Germany's had some real results. I mean, if you just look at the statistics, uh, household savings rate is at 16.9% as a so it's per- percentage of discretionary income. Uh, unemployment rate is at 3.9%, which seems ridiculous when you compare it to US's 4.7%, France's 10%, and the broader euro area is 9.6%. Um, German household debt to GDP is at 53%. Percent uh, workers' wages are growing at around four percent, and the balance of trade is, I mean, at all-time highs. But if you look at European Union data, only like, I think around fifty-three percent of Germans own their homes, compared with an average of seventy percent in the rest of Europe. So, what gives? You know, this is again we've we've touched on this. It's cultural, and uh, and the, nobody knows this and understands it better than uh, than my my great friend Steve Diggle. It, it really takes a while to get your head around this as, a, as an Anglo-Saxon because we come from cultures and we've lived in countries where the average investor's principal investment is in real estate. Anglo-Saxons love buying real estate, whether it's Australia or New Zealand or the United States or Great Britain or Canada. We love doing it. Uh, this idea that you must own your own home and borrow as much as you can to get on the property ladder uh, these are kind of ingrained into most of us from a really, really early age. That mindset just does not exist in Germany. That's Stephen Diggle, founder of Volpus Investment Management, speaking with Real Vision on April 25th, 2016. There's also um, 
a legal situation which uh, gives the renter a great deal of protection. So as a landlord, when you sign a contract with a, with a tenant, that contract literally has no expiry date. It's perpetual. Uh, German renters can, can you know, have security of tenure. And that's created an environment in which people don't feel they need to buy. And, and so as a consequence, when they stay, they stay a long time. The average German will stay in a single piece of rented accommodation for 10 years. 10 to 12 years is an average length of stay. And um, you know, we've seen tenancy agreements that are 40 years old. So you've had the same tenant in the same property for 40 years. And that is normal in Germany. 40 years is normal in Germany. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this is, I'm sure, going to blow a lot of people's minds that, that, that don't uh, understand this. It's so different to our way. And, and I think it's worth touching on the reasons for this cultural aversion that the Germans have for debt and credit. And it, and it has its roots in the, uh, in the Weimar hyperinflation in Germany in the, in the 20s and 30s. Um, we saw incredible things happen there. We saw um, uh, them printing money. We saw 10,000% inflation. We saw the mark go from eight to the dollar to 4.2 trillion to the dollar in a very, very short space of time. I can't even like fathom that number. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and it's funny because we haven't seen it for a while. We certainly haven't seen it in the West. I think if you went to Latin America, you'd find people that have seen similar sort of experience. But what's interesting is that is culturally ingrained in Germans. But we're reaching the point now where the last people who were alive during that, who were certainly old enough to remember it vividly, um, are all dying out now. And so, you know, fairly soon you're going to see that become a story in the history book that, that people have no practical memory of. And, and even though it's still holding fairly strong now, and we see that in the Bundesbank's uh, reaction to demands for more money, we, you can see that sensibility there. It's only a matter of time, in my mind, before the, the, the current and future generations of Germans are disconnected from the reality of that. So I, I think that's going to be a tailwind to um, Germans like the rest of the world starting to get more of an appetite for debt, unless we see another major debt crisis that, that that scares them uh, scares them straight again what's missing is a mass participation in this market now institutional buyers are definitely around and they have been for some time but what moves anglo-saxon property markets is mass participation and we've got seen no signs of this whatsoever um, because from a tenant's point of view They've heard about the fact, the fact that prices might be going up. I know a few cities, so inner city Munich, inner city um, Berlin, inner city Hamburg, prices have gone up a fair bit. But in almost all cases, it hasn't actually led to significantly higher rents. So if you're a tenant, it's kind of a story that you hear about, but it doesn't really affect you. Furthermore, if you go down to your local friendly bank, your local Sparkasser, or Landers Bank can say, I'd like to buy my own apartment. They'd say, well, go on then, go and, go and do it. Go and take out you know, your 300,000 from your account. But of course, if you don't have that, there's no, so there's no, there's no you don't just turn up and someone says, well, would you like a mortgage? Because just, people just don't do it. So there's no mechanism and there's no psychology. And those two things obviously you know, are self-reinforcing. All right. So Grant, right there, I mean, we just covered the social, you know, the cultural and even some of the legal barriers to, to ownership. Uh, but I think 
the next thing we should do is maybe look at some of the fundamentals of, of uh, surrounding the real estate market in Germany. Uh, and beginning with demographics, uh, it's well known that Germany's population of, I think, around 80 million people is the second oldest country uh, population in the world uh, with a medium age with the median age increasing eight years uh, between 1995 and 2015. I mean, if you just look at the distribution of, of people across uh, the age spectrum, the percentage of people who are older than 67 years old, they increase 50% uh, in the same span of time from 12.1 to 18.8. So that the demographics aren't exactly a tailwind for real estate. No, they're not. But but you have you have immigration. Um, you have uh, you have you know one point two million people net migrated to Germany uh, between two thousand ten two thousand thirteen. Obviously, we've seen the Syrian refugees come in, and while that's not um, they're not going to be buying homes anytime soon, people will be building accommodation for them, and investors will be investing money to buy and own properties so they can rent out. Um, most of the immigrants from into Germany come from Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, places like that. But the whole Schengen Agreement, which is which has allowed people to head to strong economies where they might be able to get a job, well, well guess where they're going? Uh, they're going to Germany because it is the strongest economy in Europe by far. There's been a million plus refugees arrived in the last couple of years from Syria and Afghanistan, as I said. Um, and you know, the, the, the decisions that uh, Angela Merkel has made around this immigration policy, while it might be a, a tailwind for housing, could cost her the chancellorship in, in October. So the demographic in terms of the ageing of the population um, certainly is, is, is a headwind. It's, it's not even not a tailwind. But you have this young class, they, you have affordable housing in Germany, um, and you are seeing uh, a tailwind in terms of the younger demographic that do want to get on that property ladder and, and are, are finding it makes an awful lot of sense to be the first generation that really want to own property. Uh, and I guess you could also, from there, you can look at the supply and demand gap in sort of housing completions uh, and the demand for housing in Germany. In 2014, housing completions totaled around 216,000. But then you compare that with the 550,000 uh, net migration into Germany, you're left with a pretty massive gap there. You know, the other thing that uh, that's worth noting in terms of tailwinds for property uh, is Brexit. You know, we've seen... Um We've seen in the three months following Brexit, Germany overtook Britain as a destiny for property investment. Uh, there was, I think, 13, 13 and a half billion euros in Germany versus about 10 into the UK. You've got people like Goldman Sachs talking about moving a thousand employees from London to Frankfurt. You know, this, this is just starting. And while it may, um, it may take a while to pick up any steam, uh, and depending on what happens to the Eurozone, you know, it, it may end up not being that big a tailwind. But I think it's important to understand all the various forces that are going to that are going to push people towards looking at German real estate, and and if nothing else, the, the sheer level to which it's undervalued um, is going to be the starting point. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. But Grant, I think our analysis would also be incomplete without looking at uh, the monetary angle. All the German property story is about yield, and the yields have been roughly the same for thirty years, which is somewhere around. 6 to 12%. Now, for the longest time in finance, that's been dull. But in 2009, with interest rates you know, heading towards zero, that suddenly started to look very attractive. And we've now sort of entered this twilight, you know, almost, almost unbelievable situation where you know, 23% of the world is not in a ZERP world, but a NERP world. You know, 23% of the global economy now is in negative interest rate environment. So, uh, including Germany. So, 
these sorts of yields suddenly start to look spectacularly good. And although prices have crept up, but in comparison to almost every other uh, property market in the world, it's virtually been negligible. The other thing that's happened that has made this really exciting is that interest rates in Germany have kept on going down. And now we're in a state where, you know, all the way up to the, to the seven or eight, or the seven year or the eight year, they're actually negatives. Yeah, six to 12% yields in, in a ZERP or NERP environment. It's, it's like an oasis in a desert. Yeah, and, and, and it's the real. I mean, you know, we've, I, I was sitting alongside Steve as he was investing these things. I mean, this is a real phenomenon. They're out there. Uh, but again, the problem for a lot of people is it, it's, it's a real investment. You have to go and find property and it's, you're buying a house. This isn't, this isn't an ETF. Um, which is which is a lot of the reason that these uh, these yields are still there because it is hard work and it does require uh, legwork and due diligence on the part of investors, which is uh, which is great. And so, with negative interest rates, it's not just savers who are struggling, but banks are in a bind too. The great thing now is that the the, the German banks, because they're in this NERP world, are in a really tough spot. Which is that what do you do in a in an economy where people don't like to borrow and you know, deposits are, you know, negative, you know, 30 basis points, um, you know, and, and, the, and, and the bond curve is, is negative all the way out to eight years. One of the things you can do is, is, is lend money, and, and they have started to do it a little more aggressively. For the longest time, you could never borrow more than 65% of the asset value of a property. That's crept up to 70, even 75%. What is, and what has changed dramatically since 2009 is the cost of doing that's crashed. And that that's the thing that makes us super bullish about German real estate right now, which is that we can borrow, and, and pretty much anyone can borrow, seven-year fixed money under 1.5% um, to buy an asset that's yielding 6, 8, 10. Now, and if you can borrow 70% uh, on that basis, then if you can't get a double-digit yield, there's something wrong. I mean, Grant, NERP is the, probably the first sign that something's wrong. Yeah, look, negative interest rates, it was a moment in time. And I'm thankful that the market has largely repudiated that fairly, fairly quickly, um, because I think it will be seen as a tipping point in, in when we look back on this event um, through a historical lens. But, you know, increased bank lending um, uh, and negative interest rates, that's uh, a symptom of a much larger phenomenon. Germany is in this bizarre situation. The German economy is pretty strong. You've got wages creeping up and you've got a general or of prosperity, but you've got interest rates that look like the place is in depression. And in fact, if you look at a chart of German unemployment and German interest rates, they both go in the same direction. And that's, that's just contrary to, right. to, to all economic theory. They actually positively correlate, not negatively correlate. Now, the reason for that is because of this currency union, which has created this very anomalous situation, which is... Countries with bad economies have low interest rates. Countries with strong economies have high interest rates. Not so in any, you know, in a currency union. In a currency union, money will gravitate logically to the strongest economies. So in Europe, weakest economy, Greece, 10% interest rates. Strongest economy, Germany, 0.1. Ger- you know, Greeks are literally paying 100 times the interest rate for 10-year money that the Germans pay. Now, normal economic theory is that those rates should be reversed. So what that creates is a distortion in Germany, which is it's super cheap to borrow money, but the local economy is pretty strong. Um, that's a macroeconomic anomaly. So 
So it sounds like the perfect storm in this wonky economic twilight zone with low interest rates. You have a strong economy, an unlevered population. Well, you know, the the beauty of this is when you hear someone with that clarity of thought talk about these things, you realize just how crazy the whole thing is. And generally speaking, uh, when you're dealing with natural economic forces, the craziness will get arbed out at some point. This, This cannot go on forever. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, Steve's point about being able to do this now, it, it, it's a moment in time that this is going to get arbed out. Um, and, and I think listening to that brings us full circle back to the actual opportunity here in German real estate. I get two other things. I get this hedge against inflation, which is fantastic. But I also get a free call on the breakup of the European Union. Now, that's not our base case. In fact, we think it's pretty unlikely There are plenty of people who feel it's much more likely. I think the breakup of the euro is distinctly possible. And I think that can happen without the EU breaking up. Um, But if it were to, we're going to be long Deutschmark assets and short euro debt, which is a perfect situation to be in. All right. So before we go on, uh, just to clarify, a call option is a contract that gives you the option, as the name says, uh, but not the obligation to buy an underlying security at a predetermined price. Now, Grant, what I what I find you know brilliant about this is sort of the nuance uh, between the breakup of the euro and an EU breakup, and how this this uh, investment factors into that. Well, look, I mean, Steve, Steve, I, I sat talking to Steve. We talked about this long and hard when we were first going into uh, the opportunity, and uh, this this nuance is important because it's been made abundantly clear over the last six or seven years that the Eurocats will do anything to keep this dream of theirs of a, of a united uh, European Union together. And if one of the, the, the casualties of that is the euro itself and they have to come up with a, you know, a northern euro and a southern euro, they will absolutely entertain that before they entertain a breakup of the union. So, I, you know, I think Steve's right. Um, you know, here I've talked about this a lot, and I, I put the uh, the odds of a, a breakup of the union itself higher than Steve does. But cast all that aside, the, the ability to to get these asymmetric bets on where where if a bad thing happens, you're along the right uh, asset in 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 the strong currency real estate, and you're short the right asset in uh, in a currency which is uh, which is no more. Uh, it's just it, it's just a great way to put a trade on, and and it just shows the quality of thinking around being creative when you spot an opportunity. Yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant. So we jumped around to a lot of different topics, um, but I thought it might be helpful to maybe conclude and, and summarize everything for, for the listeners. So starting from the top, you know Germany's nascent real estate market it didn't participate in the in the pre gfc shenanigans that all the other countries experience with their real estate markets and there are existing cultural barriers um aversion to debt tenant friendly laws and the prevalent renter culture that essentially stifles uh speculation in real estate but then when you combine that with the strong economic fundamentals uh with some demographic headwinds but yet there's still a dynamic environment um where the market is massively undersupplied from a fundamental level. Now, you, you layer that with the monetary uh, aspects with, with ZERP, the zero, zero interest rate policy, negative interest rate policy, and then the global search for yield, then it makes a lot of sense that institutional investors will in some ways reach for this concrete goal, as I think they're calling it in Germany. Well, I think the other thing to point out is, uh, and, and it's going to be a problem for a lot of people, but there isn't an ETF. You can't go and buy 
uh, a German property ETF as such. I mean, there may be some out there, uh, you know, kind of esoteric ones left and right. But this is an opportunity for people to go and buy a, a, an apartment in in Berlin or Munich or Frankfurt and rent it out. I mean, it, it's an old it's an old business, and people are very happy doing it in their own country. But if you're, you know, if you're if you're in Europe or you have the ability to invest in Europe. Um, it's worth taking a trip over there. If, if nothing else, you will see some fast cars and drink some great beer. Um, but you'll see you'll see a housing market that uh, that still contains some really good opportunities. Uh, but it does require getting on a plane or a train or in a car uh, and going and looking at a real tangible marketplace, which um, which I, I'm in favour of enormously. So from one great investor in Steve Diggle, we're going to move on now to uh, one of my favorite segments, Things I Got Wrong, which gives us the opportunity to ask expert market practitioners what they got wrong so that hopefully everybody listening can uh, benefit from the experience and the wisdom that they learned the hard way. And this week, uh, we have another fantastic investor uh, and a good friend of mine, Mark Yusko, the founder and CIO of Morgan Creek Asset Management. All right. So with us is Mark Yusko. And for those of you who don't know him, which I think are, are very few because, Mark, you're quite you're the prolific Twitterer. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Aaron, thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm Mark Yusko. I run a firm called Morgan Creek Capital Management in North Carolina. We are a registered investment advisor, and we help families, individuals, and institutions manage capital in the endowment style or endowment model of investing, focus on asset allocation, manager selection, and portfolio construction. So I'm the founder and CIO of Morgan Creek, and we manage assets across a number of different strategies. Great. So as the namesake of this uh, segment, Things I Got Wrong, Mark, can you describe a time when you faced a significant investing challenge or even possibly a mistake you made? <laughs> yes. Uh, the great thing about this business is, is you know, the average investor is wrong more often than they're right. The legends are right about 58% of the time. So you know, I aspire to get somewhere in the 50s. So lots of things I could talk about and being wrong. But, but if we talk about the biggest, uh, that's easy for me. Um, back before the global financial crisis, uh, we had a, an interesting idea that we would take a, a set of low-volatility strategies, so a set of low-volatility hedge fund strategies, convertible arbitrage, merger arbitrage, um, just very low-risk strategies. And by pooling them together uh, across multiple strategies, we would decrease that risk. And risk there is defined as, as volatility. And then um, we would add leverage at the fund level to that portfolio and bring a um, you know, good return up to a, a very good return. And that strategy worked like a charm through 2005, 6, 7, and into all the way through September of, of 2008. And then we learned a very valuable lesson about, uh, about what leverage can do and, and uh, turned a, a good investment into a, a less good investment. Wow. So, Mark, can you speak a little bit more about uh, that time in September 2008 when things finally turned at the margin? What, what was going through your head? Um, were, you, were you still sticking to the strategy or how did that, um, how did that evolve for you? Yeah, the, the, the most important thing about, about this idea is, is the, the strategy itself is, is sound in the sense of, you know, leverage is a tool. 
it's not good or bad in and of itself. It, it simply amplifies the movements, you know, plus or minus uh, in, in any asset. And if you think about, you know, pre-global financial crisis, there had never been movements in certain asset classes, whether it be convertible bonds or senior secured bonds or, or things that, that in their basic essence aren't very risky. You know, they, they historically hadn't moved a lot in price. Unfortunately, um, post-September of 2008, during the global financial crisis, those assets on a mark-to-market basis, primarily because some changes in, in mark-to-market accounting rules, really did fluctuate multiple standard deviations beyond expectations. One of the challenges of, of human beings is we don't, we don't tend to envision outliers very well, and, and uh, we can't really anticipate the worst-case scenario. So in that environment, um, and when an asset becomes very, very volatile, leverage can, can cause you to, to have to sell a good asset or a good strategy, which we had, at the wrong time at a bad price and incur a loss. So Mark, I actually, I recently heard you, um, there's this quote you had, I think, people sell things they need at the wrong time. Uh, what was that quote again? Yeah, so the, the basic quote is, is human beings are really good at two things. One, they buy what they wish they would have bought. So they're always chasing the hot dot. They're always buying the hot performance from the previous couple of years or even one year. And then they sell what they're about to need. And so they, they constantly sell what has underperformed recently. And unfortunately, that means people tend to buy high and sell low, which is the opposite of, of how you should make money. So a lot of, lot of nuggets there. But out of the, the experience leading up to 2008, September 2008, uh, what is that sort of one nugget of financial wisdom you think you could share from that experience and from that time? Yeah, I, I think the nugget I, I come away with is, you know, leverage and volatility don't mix. They're, they are like oil and water. And as I said, leverage is a tool. It's not bad. It, it actually is very good in certain types of investments. Uh, the problem is it, it doesn't change the underlying investment. You know, it can't make a, a bad investment good, um, but it actually can make a good investment bad because of this timing problem. You can be forced to sell a good asset at a bad price. So the, the, the real nugget is to, to be very sure if you're ever going to use leverage to match the volatility of the asset with the amount of leverage you use. So if you have a very low volatility asset, you know, like a home, people own a home, they put four turns of leverage on it, 80% mortgage, 20% capital. That's not a bad thing because you don't mark to market your house every day and, and the price doesn't really move that much. If you get to 90 or 95 or 99 or 100% loan to value, bad things will happen. Your, your equity gets wiped out. Um, the second little nugget from there is, is be very careful about asset liability mismatch. What that means is if you've got a long-duration asset, um, don't finance it with short-duration money. And you know, that was one of the things we learned uh, in, in 2008 was that uh, unfortunately, we thought we had longer duration financing, but it turns out that during crises, the banks will do what's in their best interest, regardless of what the documents say. So you may think you have a long duration financing agreement, contract, 
But if the bank wants their capital back because they've got problems of their own, they will, they will get it back. And, and the last little nugget there is um, history is not a perfect predictor of volatility. Things can and will get worse than you think. And the stress that can occur in a crisis will exceed your stress test. So what you thought was the worst possible outcome, um, it, it will get worse in a, in a stressful period. So uh, what you need to be able to do is have, have enough margin of safety if you're going to use leverage on an asset uh, to protect against that, that rising volatility in those, in those uh, difficult times. Well, thanks for that, Mark. There's so much uh, to chew on there. 58% is where the legends are, as you said. Uh, I guess it makes me feel a little bit better being under 50%, uh, but definitely something to aim for. Uh, but thanks for, thanks for joining us, Mark. Well, thanks for having me and look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, so uh, that was Mark Yusko. And really, if you're not on Twitter, you should be. And you should be following Mark at Mark Yusko, M-A-R-K-Y-U-S-K-O. Uh, he is one of the most accessible and affable market experts out there. Um, he's always happy to answer questions. I mean, I've asked him some myself and and he, you know, he shares great content. So uh, definitely follow him out there. Uh, but Grant, leverage and volatility, asset liability mismatch, you know, history not being a perfect uh, predictor of volatility. There is so much there. And it's, I mean, 2008 just sounds like fertile ground for, for lessons. Well, look, I mean, it, it, it's the best period we've had. If you want to learn lessons, uh, it's the best period we've had uh, in, in 30 or 40 years. The, the problem is a lot of those lessons aren't being learned. Uh, and it's guys like Mark that can point out some of the things that they've learned that hopefully will, will, will get people thinking on their own because um, you know, this is a multidimensional puzzle that we're all trying to put together and trying to invest, particularly in modern markets where we do have a lot of outside influences uh, which are changing the script. So uh, yeah, 2008, fertile ground for lessons and, and guys like Mark Yusko, you just can't have too many of them uh, offering you insights. Grant, I couldn't agree more, but I just want to pass on a message from our lawyers. Guys, anything you've heard in this episode should not be considered or construed as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So be smart, do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, and trade responsibly. All right, so that's the end of this week's podcast. Next week, we'll be back with our usual segments of long, short, and things I got wrong. But next week's feature, we are back with the commentary where Raul and Grant revisit a timeless Real Vision TV interview and add their insights to the mix. Yeah, next week, uh, Raul and I are going to sit and, and walk through an interview that Robin Griffiths gave um, last year. Robin is the head of multi-asset research and the chief technical analyst at uh, ECU Group in London. Uh, and he's been in the markets for 50 years. I mean, it's just an extraordinary career. And we get a fantastic inside look into Robin's cyclical and technical framework. So don't miss that. If you have an interesting question about this week's show, then please feel free to send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvisiontv.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, leave us a review. It keeps my boss happy. And you can follow us on Twitter at Real Vision for the latest updates on interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Just search for Real Vision. Uh, my Twitter handle is at TTMYGH. And mine is at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. So we will hopefully see you next week. Chat with you then. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.